This is a special episode of Book Nookie. I'm your host, Brian. On today's episode, Eric Jacquard has returned to the studio to talk about Alistair Gray. On the 29th of December, 2019, Alistair Gray passed away. The Guardian had this to say. Alistair Gray, who has died aged 85, was the father figure of the Renaissance in Scottish literature and art, which began in the penultimate decade of the 20th century. Gray's great novel Lanark, 1981, was an almost preposterously ambitious concoction of thinly disguised autobiography, science fiction, formal playfulness, the four-part story opened at book three, and graphic design by the author on a monumental scale. Scottish fiction, which had lain in a depressed state for years, suddenly took off in unexpected directions. Previously, Eric talked to us about why he loved the book Lanark. On today's episode, Eric is going to take a look at Alistair Gray's wider portfolio and tell us five reasons why he loves Alistair Gray. Yes, we're going to talk about Alistair Gray and my personal and intellectual uh, infatuation with his art and the perspective on the world that is communicated through his art. I obviously don't know the person. <laughs> um, I've seen him interviewed, but you know, by the time I saw that, he was 75, yeah. 80. Um, and I've, al- I've always found him to be a little difficult to understand and not in a conventional like Scottish way in a kind of mumbly way. <laughs> when I listen to him talk, he kind of kind of talks like this, and, and everything is like that. Or at least by the time he was older, he was doing yeah. that. Um, all right, so I'll, I'll, I'll say up front that uh, of these five things, you can kind of see in my list that two of them got fairly well fleshed out. Um, two of them are not fleshed out at all. Um, and then one is kind of moderately fleshed out, and that was me like taking breaks today between cleaning and <laughs> doing work. Um, do you want to? Do you have them ordered in a way that you want to go through them? Are, I'm going to go ranked? through them in the in the way that I wrote them down, um, and I did that with some consciousness towards how things would unfold. So um, I have five points, and in in thinking them over, I I, I already knew this, but. It, it occurred to me that a lot of them are connected, and I think that's inevitable. Um, and so yeah. I'll try and maybe point out the connections when I, I get to them. But the five points, starting with point number one, um, and I struggled with how to phrase the first two points. Both start with gray is opposed to. And I, I tried to rephrase those as, as things he is in support of. <laughs> Rather than uh, as opposition, but I, I think that the the positive meaning will come out of it. So the first point that I wrote down was Gray is opposed to the capitalization of human and non-human life, um, and I think what I mean by that is that m- throughout most of his fiction, most of his fiction is very political, um, in one way or another. As we talked about with Lanark, right? There are a lot of um, different dimensions of anti-capitalist critique in Lanark. Um, You could also say that there are careful and tentative promotions of ideas like socialism 
in Lanark, I mean, Gray was never shy about saying that that he was in support of um, socialist politics. Um, I think that he was always, in my reading of him and the things he said outside of his fiction, wary at times of, of socialism as a as embodied in a state, um, but that he believed that humans should be valued as humans, not as value. And that there's a constant struggle across most of his novels, in any, in any way, um, against the assumption that we're naturally conditioned above all else to seek personal gain at the expense of others. Um, and we obviously understand this to be a very common and pervasive assumption that we make um, in our world and have been making now and has become really dominant since, you know, the 1970s. Um, and when you look at Lanark, it's really easy to see both of the stories, the Thaw story and the Lanark story, the characters struggling against that assumption uh, and the way it's coded into the worlds that they inhabit. Um, it's a little subtler in the Thaw story, but it's even there when Thaw thinks about all the times he doesn't want to work and why he doesn't want to work and how art is an escape from the drudgery of work um, and how trapped we are in, in, into a system that demeans us through labor. Um, and you have, we talked about this in the previous podcast, his friend Coulter, who's older and goes to work first and gives him a kind of preview of what the working world is like. You have his father, who's constantly saying, you got to get a job. Duncan, um, and then Duncan's like, no, I won't. Um, and he, a lot of what he does as an artist seems to be in direct opposition to the idea that there really is no good version of labor in his world. Everything is about value. Um, and he looks around and sees people reduced to value, um, scrabbling to get by. Um, there's that scene where he's a child and he talks about how everything in the garden is constantly eating itself, which I've always seen as a metaphor for the way he sees the world out there. Um, and then there's Lanark, who of course has to work in, as we mentioned before, this crazy bureaucracy, um, in Unthank and is constantly working against the assumption that people are expendable sources of wealth or value or sustenance, right? As we see when we get to the Institute in Lanark, right? Things are, act people are literally being eaten. There are the various different um, discussions of cannibalism and so forth. Um, and so they struggle against those societies and they struggle against the, a tendency in themselves, I think, to also the word I want, to collude with those systems. Um, as, as much as Lanark wants to see himself as above it all, he, he is constantly in his own ways striving for personal importance, personal gain, personal uh, fame and power. Um, and we know from talking about it that Thaw, Thaw's escape you know, is only possible because he's basically able to reduce everyone else in the world to an object of his artistic vision, which is another form of value, another form of domination. Um, so now I have to talk about books you haven't read, right? But in addition to that, you have Jock McLeish, who's the main character in 1982, Janine, um, who is a product of these various systems, a kind of self-hating Calvinist society. No offense to Calvinists, but 
Calvin was not a self-loving person. Um, he is a kind of isolated and, and atomized hyper-capitalist in, in the Thatcherite era. Um, and then he's also a kind of toxically masculine person, or at least that's how he's framed. Um, and in each of those different dimensions, you see a model of the same version of kind of exploitation that you see in the larger kind of macro um, setup of the societies in each of the books. In A History Maker, which is the one I'm going to suggest you read if you take it home, um, this is a, a post-scarcity uh, utopia. Um, it's a matriarchy. Um, and it's a world in which a lot of the problems that I'm saying he's opposed to don't exist anymore because of technological advances, because somewhere, I forget, it's been a while since I read it, but there was some type of disaster or problem or revolution or something like that that changed things. Um, and people in that world are closer to the land, closer to their communities, closer to the fruits of their labor, closer to art, um, with the exception of the main character, who is this kind of uh, constantly disgruntled man who wonders what things could have been like if he didn't live in that world. He's like, dang it, it's just too perfect. Um, and then in Poor Things, there is this, this which is a kind of quasi-retelling of parts of Frankenstein, at least, that take place in, in late Victorian Scotland. And um, when I was thinking about capitalism and capitalization and, and the reduction of people to uh, monetary value, I just kept kind of thinking about the way that book unfolds in terms of the way the characters use each other. Uh, there's a scientist in that book who basically finds or is gifted a, uh, a woman who has committed suicide, and he takes her brain and puts it in another woman's body uh, as a way of creating his perfect companion. So if you've read Frankenstein, this should sound a little uh, familiar. Um, and I, I think that some of what's going on in that story is a questioning of the values that underpin the Victorian era notion of progress. Um, and one of, one of the contradictions about the 19th century is that it's constantly talking about how much progress is being made um, while at the same time, you know, struggling to spread the wealth, for lack of a better phrase. Um, and so if you know anything about Gray, none of this should be surprising. You know, he's born in 34, I think. Um, and so he's very young when the war happens. Um, but he's six, so he, and that would make him 11 in 45, which is when the labor government wins. Um, and he is really tied to that moment. I, th I think he always saw himself as a kind of beverage report, Bevanite who, so National Health Service, everything that happened between 45 and 55, or whenever the conservatives come back into power, maybe it's 54, 51, um, struck him as being a particularly decent model of a world that could, at the very least, lend everyone the safety and stability that they needed in order to lead happy, comfortable, uh, fulfilling lives. And I think that for him... That is not a political impossibility because he lived at a time when people made something like that happen. And so he sees over the 60s and the 70s and into the 80s when he's still writing the slow crumbling of that ethos um, and his books, especially if you think of book four in, in, in Lanark, become much 
darker and more afraid of the ways we've moved away from that. Sorry, I'm not, this is like a total monologue. It's, no, that's great. I guess that's a different, <laughs> I, it's, it's um, a total monologue. Episode. If you, if you have anything to say, if you want to chip in, I'm going to start to feel self-conscious of the fact that I'm talking for an hour straight. Um, I'm curious about what is the, what's the publication order of the books that we've discussed just now. Um, Lanark, 1982, Janine, uh, Poor Things, and History Maker. Um, and he has in there somewhere... Uh, I forget. There's one called Something Leather, and that might come between Poor Things and History Maker. History Maker, I believe, is 94. Um, and he really slowed down. Yeah, 94. Poor Things is 90. Um, and I there's a period between like 85 and 90 where he was doing stuff. He wrote for TV sometimes and tried to do theater and was involved. Uh, he was involved with the BBC. He was involved with uh, like the Scottish arts council and a lot of local Glasgow era area things. Um, so I think it's so, so valuable to us now to be asking questions about what arenas of human life can be capitalized on and which ones can't. Um, and if we had done this a month ago, we might have thought a bit differently. Yeah. And the fact that we're starting to vociferously foreground and emphasize these questions about what we value and how we value it and which parts of our lives are expendable or worthy of risk... <laughs> Right and, and, and which aren't. And so what we're learning right now on the ground every day is that health is not one of those things. Um, I think a lot of people are beginning to see that education shouldn't be one of those things. Um, I mean, you tell me, what else shouldn't be one of those things? Um, health, education, you could argue that some manner of economic stability should be one of those things, whether you're for a universal basic income or you want to find ways to create fuller employment. I mean, we're doing okay now, if you believe the people who tout low unemployment numbers. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, um, one of the things, like, I think with with both school and work, it's a really interesting thing right now where it's revealing the way that um, the sort of it reveals the way that in which we've come to think of those things only in terms of productivity and achievement engines. Mm -hmm. But then when schools all shut down, all of a sudden the first question is, well, now how do we feed all these people who are dependent on school lunches? But that wasn't the conversation we have about schools during normal times. Right. During normal times, it's all like grades and, you know, just like how and STEM and, common core and like all this stuff and how do you how do you make the students the most efficient students and then at work it's all about well you and go the, to work and, and, and the teachers yeah and the teachers yeah. and you go to work and it's like it's all about productivity and then all of a sudden you stop going to work and everyone realizes oh holy shit i'm so lonely and work was my main form of social interaction because your life is so focused on these economically productive things mm -hmm. that that consumes the majority of your time and you realize how little you actually connect with people mm -hmm. outside of work. 
Yeah, and what you connect with people over and when you do it and, and what role that plays in, in everyone's life. I mean, I think that Gray would absolutely ask us to consider what type of labor we perform and why we perform it and whether we find it fulfilling and valuable. And I don't mean to sound like, you know, our parents or grandparents uh, stereotype of a millennial who's like, my job must be fulfilling or my dreams will be crushed, you know, wah, wah. Um, but I do think from, from reading Gray and from the, the interviews and uh, other commentary that I, I read of him that, he believed that it ought to, at the very least, be a goal of ours that we find ways to center the human dimensions of our societies um, and privilege the parts of it that allow us to feel connected to each other, connected to our work, right? I mean, he would probably say that we, we should all see our work as a form of art doesn't need to be actual art, right? doesn't need to be painting or sculpture. Um, I'm going to talk later about his thinking about nationality in, in a very similar way. Um, but just just to kind of round this point off um, before I, I, I move on to the next one, I, I said, I think in the last podcast, that I have always appreciated how listening to his characters talk about ideas like socialism, or even listening to him talk about it, um, has always been very refreshing for me, and maybe it's because I'm an American and that's been a dirty word most of my life. Um, but when socialism, which is obviously something we've been trained to think of as bad by association, right, um, is repackaged as not state power working to try and make human life perfect, which right? Nothing will work if that's our goal. Um, but a value um, that says we're at our best when we have the stability and support we need to pursue our individual desires and satisfactions, um, and when we promote the individual's ability to see community as valuable. Um, and that's we obviously do that regardless of whether it's promoted. It's part of, it's an inherently good part of human life most of the time. Um, but then we're, we're frequently told that, you know, our, our nature drives us right toward, again, towards self gain. We're all isolated economic actors working to maximize <laughs> self interest. Um, and therefore, you know, community is fine as long as you're getting something out of it. Yeah. Um, and clearly, I think, and you've read Lanark, you can tell me what you think, but I don't think that when Gray talks about socialism, he does it in a naive way. I don't, I think he talks about it in full awareness and understanding of the problems inherent in giving the state the keys to our happiness. Um, and you see that, especially in Unthank. Um, it's never perfect. And like, there's, you know, we, even one of the, I forget which book it is. It might be book one or four. It's one of the unthank ones though, that basically has the Leviathan in it. 
right? The idea of the state that's been brought into existence precisely to control people who, in the Hobbesian version, right, are, are otherwise going to kill each other out of, out of uh, self-interest and self-protection. Um, and so whenever you set up an incredibly complicated system to try and serve the needs of ordinary people, right, as you see in here and in Kafka and all the other things that we know Gray was influenced by, you see the system begin to take on a life of its own. Um, as we discussed in, in, in the last podcast, there are no villains in Lanark, really. There are some villainous characters, but there's no bad guy. There's no one person you can point to and say, well, if we got rid of that person, the system would be fine. The system is the villain in Lanark. Maybe systems in general. Um, and there's, so I'm going to, this is the quote that I had uh, written down that I'm going to use to transition. Okay. Did you want to say something? Um, I'm curious if this is something that you think, like, you came to with some pre-existing views to be receptive to this. I mean, obviously you were somewhat receptive but do you think that some of your opinions on the subject were taught to you by reading Alistair Gray or like what's the, how did it affect you? My opinions about the subjects that he discusses or, this, or about him? About this, the subjects mm-hmm. and this number one, this opposing I the mean, capitalization I'm... of people. Is it something you kind of explored before sure. you got into Alistair Gray? Yes. I mean, possibly like you, I don't know. I mean, I'm I like a lot of Americans grew up with ideas about capitalism and socialism and I started to question what I believed as I got, you know, like a lot of people into my later teens and, and early twenties. And um I don't know that I was ever I've never been a political activist. Um I've never worked on a campaign. Um, I, as I began to continue my education, these things became more important to me. I began to read texts more for the politics um, that they promoted, whether directly or or indirectly. And I think, like a lot of people too, I get really frustrated with books that are overtly political. I, I, I there's some. I'll just use the uh, example of African fiction since I spent a lot of time reading it in grad school. There's some African fiction from like the 1960s that is like almost tiresomely utopian uh, or like it's like Marxist critique, but in a really vulgar, obvious and kind of unconvincing way. Um, what I've found refreshing, like I said, what I found refreshing about Gray is that he's able to humanize something for me that's, that remains very abstract a lot of the time. Um, and so, you know, if we're able to do that now because we understand that people are, are dying or are vulnerable, right, or are not going to eat, um, Gray's able to talk about socialism in ways that have to do with people eating, right, or people loving, um, or people having friends, or people being committed to the improvement of themselves and of others. Um, and so when I connect with this, I think I've actually found it easier to connect with this than I have with any of the Marxist theory that I read in grad school. Um, so I knew a lot, but um, like a lot of Americans, I probably am like 
deeply skeptical down deep down. I mean, that's partly just me. I tend to be kind of a skeptical and at times cynical person. And so, um, this makes sense. The Gray's version of it at times makes sense to me and, and, and his skepticism makes sense to me too. And I, I've always appreciated that about him. Um, so the conversation that I'm going to read is a, just a brief snippet. It happens not long at all before the end of Lanark. So it's when he's in Provence and he's just listened to the Lord Mambodo give his speech and he stands up and says, nope, you're lying. And then Mambodo takes him back into his office and they have this little conversation. Um, and it is a conversation about human societies and freedom and from Mambodo's perspective, why it is that they live in the world that they live in. So <clears throat> Lanark, decent as always, are you telling me that men lack the decency and skill to be good to each other? And Mamboto says, not at all. Men have always possessed that decency and skill. In small, isolated societies, they have even practiced it. But it is a sad fact of human nature that in large numbers, we only organize against each other. You are a liar, cried Lanark. We have no nature. Our nations are not built instinctively by our bodies like beehives. They are works of art, like ships, carpets, and gardens. The possible shapes of them are endless. It is bad habits, not bad nature, which makes us repeat the dull old shapes of poverty and war. Only greedy people who profit by these things believe they are natural. And then Mombodo comes back with, Your flood of language is delicious, he says, yawning slightly, and it can have no possible effect on human behavior. And that's where I'll end the quote. There's more that follows that. Um, and I'm going to come back to it in a second because it's kind of a transition into my second point. Um, but I, I end this point just with a question that I see insistently foregrounded in his work, which is what would actually happen if we put human happiness at the forefront of our calculations? What if our calculations were calculations about happiness rather than, as you were saying, about productivity or efficiency or value? narrowly understood, um, right? It's entirely possible that the results won't be perfect, right? Um, but it also seems probable that it will be a farsight better than if we continue to assume that the most important thing about us are our basest instincts. Yeah. And I'm not denying that there are people who are incredibly self-interested and that's a part of being human, just like community consciousness is, but... To say that one is true over the other seems like an oversight. Yeah. I think there are some positive trends in the world in that area where, like, I think many, there's a large amount of people pushing to stop measuring countries by GDP mm -hmm. and start to use, like, the Human Development Index mm -hmm. or something that incorporates happiness in some way. As a, what, as a measuring stick rather than it just being purely economic. Yeah. What do we actually mean when we use the word growth? Yeah. <laughs> Is it only a net uh, increase in exports? Yeah. Or if or, unemployment goes down because everyone gets really bad jobs? Yeah. Is that good? Is that growth? Is that... Yeah. I, I mean, that's why I don't... I honestly don't give a shit when they say, oh, the unemployment rate is 3.5%. As we're now learning, some of those people only work when the economy is good. Yeah. Right? So their jobs are incredibly precarious, um, like are many of the jobs worked by people in my field. Well, and the economy was good, 
until it wasn't. Yeah. There isn't a good economy that just continues to yeah. be good no matter what happens. It's like you have to build resilience into the system and you have to um you have to do something for to make sure that people maintain something because the economy is always up and down and up and down. Mm-hmm. And you can't just say, oh, well, the economy is good, so that means everything is good. But that's what they want you to believe. How it can change overnight like that. <laughs> point number two. Right. I think so. Point number one, I had the most written down for. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to, I feel like that took about 20 minutes at least. Um, I'm not sure, but. So point number two is connected to point number one, but it's different and more expansive. Um, and so my, my point here was another gray as opposed to. Point number two is gray as opposed to the instrumentalization of human life. Um, and what I mean by part of what I mean by that has to do with capitalism, which turns us into instruments of, of value production. Um, and but I'm we just talked about that, so I'm going to skip over that. You know, part of this is is political. It's about the political systems that we erect in order to achieve social ends, even good social ends sometimes, um, and the ways that we are instrumentalized by those systems turned into functions of those systems rather than people. So you can see there's a connection here. Um, and we see that throughout all of his fictions. Um, but I'm, I'm suddenly... Well, I'll wait till, till we get there. Because re- what, what I really want to talk about here is, is language and narration and history. Um, because I think one of the most interesting things about Gray... And he's not alone, obviously, in, in being a self-conscious writer. There are many, many writers who do what he does with um, meta-narrative and stories that are always very aware and very uh, inquisitive about their own um, narrative nature, right? Um, but I do think that this fear of and and kind of moral resistance to becoming someone else's instrument animates a lot of what he does. Um, and you see it in the fiction, which is constantly looking its over, over its own shoulder. Um, in Lanark, I would, I would argue that both of those stories are constantly looking over their own shoulder at the other one, right? Um, trying to figure out which one is correct, which one is more authoritative, which voice has the most power in that story. Um, he goes out of his way, it seems, at times to make sure we can't really answer that question. Um, and I think that's an, a very deliberate strategy on his part. Um, in Poor Things, um, the majority of Poor Things is written uh, from the perspective of this uh, gentleman named Archibald McCandless who falls in love with the cre- creature, <laughs> falls in love with... Uh, the woman who was once called Bella Baxter before she committed suicide and is later called Victoria McCandless. Um, and so the majority of the story is his perspective on falling in love with her and, and the, her creation and how they end up. And then the last 40 pages is a letter written by her that basically says that was all bullshit, <laughs> um, which we see in Lanark as well, right? Even when the Oracle just says, well, actually she heard a different story and that story is every bit as true as your story. Um, in, Something very similar happens in, in a history maker. A history maker is, we learn it by the end, 
composed by the character that becomes the protagonist. But in that book, there is an Alistair Gray, who is the editor of A History Maker, who is also constantly popping in and out and commenting on things. Um, and then in, in 1982, Janine, it's, it's almost as though the meta-narrative part, I mean, there are two different narratives, like I said in the last podcast, there's a more social realist one, and there's a modernist kind of stream of consciousness one, and they're definitely commenting on each other, but it's almost at times, and now I have it, so now I can show you, um, where the text itself, in the ways that it begins to break down into, here we go, sorry, off screen, Eric shows Brian yeah. just how much 1982 Janine devolves into chaos, deconstructing itself. Um, and I've always thought that that's basically his brain, his consciousness split off and arguing with itself right there, which is the moment right which precedes a suicide attempt uh, for, for Jock McLeish. So... I've always appreciated that. I, and as I said to you, I love it because it dovetails with how I already interact with my fiction and with a lot of the claims that are made to me by other people in the world. Um, it allows me to feel like my skeptic skepticism is, is valuable and, and, and warranted. Um, but it's also helped me think about the stories that I tell, um, whether it's simply personal. Um, you can... You can possibly comment on this, but I think that anyone who's been in a long relationship with someone understands that you have a story that you tell about that relationship and they have a story that they tell. And they're a character in yours and your character in theirs, and they're very different, right? And they're shaped in ways, oftentimes, that suit the teller. Um, and so they become our little mythologies, right? And we, in some ways, trap people in them. Um, and I think Gray is very aware of that. And... That operates on a totally personal level, like I just explained it, and it operates on a world historical level when we talk about the histories we create um, and the ways we trap people in them. Um, for some people, histories are, you know, a procession of glories, and for some people, they are a nightmare. Um, and so one of the things that a number of scholars have said Gray does and that, that have said Scottish literature does more, more generally is to constantly question the idea of a linear history, which was an idea that was more or less created in the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, so you could call it a, a Scottish idea. Um, and while it's frustrating sometimes to read books that are constantly questioning their own premises, questioning their own values, questioning their own plots, um, I feel like it's a very productive type of being kept on edge, I suppose, like a form of alienation. Yeah. from the comfort, which you might even call a kind of privilege that comes of seeing yourself as the center of the story. Yeah. Let's, I mean, if we're going to tie stuff to current events, I think like the, the sixteen nineteen project and then various responses to that in the way that like, cause now like the sixteen nineteen project came out and they were like, what if we viewed 1619 as the founding year of America? Mm -hmm. Because that was the year that the first African slaves arrived. How would that change the mm -hmm. way we view the story of America? And then 
obviously some people were made very uncomfortable by that Mm -hmm. because they're like, no, the story is 1776 and these dudes. Wait, they say it's 1776? That's the... They ignore the 250 years that happened like before that? Well... I thought you were going to say it was like 1492 or something. Oh, that's like... uh, I think 1492 is a risky year because it's before 1619. (laughs) And it's not Anglo. No, I think some people... I'm pretty sure I saw this. Someone did start a 1776 project. And people were like, this is stupid. That's already the story. Like you know, that America was founded with the Declaration of Independence and mm-hmm. then the Constitution and blah, blah, blah. And What did they think happened? Again, I don't understand how that works. Well, yeah, it's not it's not good history, but it's it's the stories, right? Right. You, you make up this narrative, and it's pretty much the story we're all told. Like, I mean, when you learn in school, you like you learn 1492, and then you and fast then forward. Pilgrims, pilgrims. Yeah, they're in there, but you don't learn too much details about it, and then you fast forward to... Declaration of Independence. I learned something about the early 18th century. It's like pilgrims, Indians, French and Indian War. They skip like 150 years. Yeah. And then Boston Tea Party, and then it's off and running. Yeah. And that's that's the story, and we put all those characters into the story of like George Washington did this, and they're trapped in there, and then there's this element, and then it's like you have that story – and when someone tries to change the story, mm-hmm. people get extremely put out by that. Why do you think that is? Because the story makes them feel comfortable and doesn't make them question their value. It makes them feel like they are the most valuable and the most important and that they are their destiny is manifest in taking over this country and if you say, actually, no, that was a bad thing, and some of that, those people were bad people, and you shouldn't necessarily feel good about that, mm-hmm. and you should question whether or not you have a right to all this stuff, mm-hmm. people don't want to do that. So speaking of people who like to be the center of the universe and, and see themselves as unquestionably good, point three <laughs> is... Um, a point I made in the previous podcast, but it's still a reason that I love him. It's also a reason that I love Lanark. Um, so point three is Gray is willing to look critically at the ways patriarchy in particular is bound up with forms of domination and exploitation. Um, so this is one of the points that I literally wrote no notes for. <laughs> um, I wrote, I mentioned this in Lanark episode of Book Nookie. All right. That's all. Well, we've hit the ground running on it. So I think. Yeah. It, it, it's another really topical um, point. The idea that it is, it has become, and I think that, I mean, again, Gray is doing this from the beginning, and in ways that, as far as I've read, have made feminists fairly comfortable with him, um, not necessarily always with the subject matter of his books. Like, I, I think if you were to read 1982 Janine as a woman in general, and definitely as a feminist woman, you'd have problems with it because it does depict male sexual violence. Um, however, I think a careful and discerning reader also understands by the end of that book that he is not a good character um, and we're not supposed to see him as one. Um, And so, yeah, men tell a lot of stories and historically women have been erased erased from or marginalized in those stories. Um, And that's one of the best things about poor things 
that the woman in Poor Things, who is batted around between these two men who kind of want to own her and possess her, um, and is a kind of dominant force intellectually, personally, sexually, which scares the crap out of them, right? gets the last word and, and has become a doctor at that point, or at least in her version of the story, is a doctor and is able to kind of calmly and coolly and quite intellectually eviscerate right her, metaphorically, of course, her, her uh, husband. Um, and that's very similar to the that maneuver that we see in Lanark. It's never... He doesn't spend enough time, perhaps, in Lanark focusing on that. Um, and there's so much more that could be done with the women in that book. Um, but we do get to see a lot of Rima. And I think that Rima would be, if you were to give this book to a selection of 200 of my UW undergraduates, an incredibly divisive character. Some of, I bet some people, even the women, would think she was a bitch. In the same way that people thought... Um, Anna Gunn's portrayal of Skylar on Breaking Bad was a bitch, right? She's getting in the man's way, constantly questioning the man and what he's doing, right? And the value of his enterprise. Um, and we get that one moment where we hear that there's a Rima story. But again, every, most of the other women in that book are pawns in the narrative games being played by men. Um, and perhaps your average reader wouldn't get that. I mean, you got it. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting point because it kind of came up when we talked when I talked to Kitty Cook about um The Good Earth mm-hmm. which was written by a woman but it was written about a male um main character and in some ways by focusing on the male main character and sidelining the women you get maybe a more effective understanding of the ways in which women can be sidelined and just Mm -hmm. sometimes ignored and just like objectified and left out of things. Whereas if you'd show it from the woman's perspective, maybe the way it hits you is different or the way the way it hits men is different. Yeah. Or or maybe anyone. Yeah. I mean, I think women would maybe, just get it and so it's it's not as important but for us you need to like i don't know it's there's there's something there where yeah like that one moment of you find out there's a rima story and you don't get to see it Mm -hmm. but you know it's there Mm -hmm. it's like by it being just that one moment is that more impactful she gets to tell him he's wrong a lot which is maybe cold comfort. And she also gets to, she, she gets to point out just how immature he is a lot of the time. Um, as they all age throughout, you know, very rapidly throughout book four, she doesn't change a ton, but you know, there are these moments where she just kind of gets tired of him. And I think the first time I read Lanark, I was like, why is she so tired? And come on, he's just being pushed around. But the more you read it, the more you realize how tiresome Lanark is. <laughs> as a character and how difficult he would be to live with. Um, to leave him to go to Sludden, I'm not sure about that choice, but she also just, she was a single mom at that point. Um, and then there is the matriarchal world in A History Maker, which more or less indirectly says the world would be a better place if the women were in charge. Um, I think I told you last time that one of the funny 
interesting things about that book is that that in that world, the women have decided that there's no way to really rid the men of their violent tendencies, that that's something that they need an outlet for. It's part of their biology, that even in a world where all the problems they used to be called on to solve have been solved, they still want to fight each other. And so it's become like baseball. They have these battles on cliffs, like overlooking the North Sea in, in, in Northumbria, and you, they get out there and they battle, and it's a spectator sport. Nice. Um, and and everyone and you get the sense when you're reading it that everyone thinks it's a little ridiculous, and even the men doing it are kind of like, "Look at this! We've been reduced to to doing this. Our battles don't matter anymore. It's like they're not about politics; they're about sport." And maybe the point there is that they were always like that, and we just yeah. pretended they were something more. Um, so I guess that's all I had to say about that, but I think that point is worth making over and over again. He's not, you know, I think that you're right to say that the right type of reader will look at a story that's focused on damaged men and see it as such. And it's like how you read Heart of Darkness, and you're like, wow, these people are super racist, and that was really bad. And <laughs> you don't need to see that from the other perspective, right? You see you see inside the thought process and you're like, wow, that's really If you do. I mean, if you do. I'm not trying to make us paragons of wokeness right now, but I think think we get it. it. (laughs) I think some men could read that book and just ignore most of the women or they just, that's part of the privilege, right? Is being able to read it and go, oh yeah, we're in the center and just not even actually have that conscious thought. Yeah. Um, I think like Lanark is a book that you have to read so closely. I feel like it'd be hard to actually get through that, that and miss. That person might not read Lanark in the first yeah. place. <laughs> That's the first Oh, well, we're starting to sound snobbish, Brian. Oh, well, that yeah. type of person wouldn't listen to our show. I don't think there's anything wrong with being a snob about how shitty some men are. Yeah, shitty men. You hear that? We're not yeah. even paying attention well, to you. Those shitty men wouldn't even listen to this podcast. That's right. They're not going to listen to us talk about how woke we are for an hour. Um, all right. So in the interest of oh, gravity, We're talking about how woke Alistair Gray is and how much we respect that. Yeah. I would say he was woke for his time. Um, and I also think that it could just be that he, he was in, you know, he, he, he strikes me as a kind of quiet, nerdy guy. I've seen him. Probably wasn't, you know... I think he saw himself as being on the outside of things. I think he was very self-deprecating. And some of what comes across in his novels are are those poses. Men that wish they were in the center of things but aren't and probably never will be. And so are constantly saying bad things about themselves. Like, let me read to you the uh, inscription at the beginning of A History Maker. A history maker. Alistair Gray is a fat, old, asthmatic Glaswegian who lives by painting and writing his books, yada, yada, yada. How much, um, how much do you think that's a Scottish thing? Self-deprecation? Yeah, some of these, these traits generally. Like... Totally. Um, from my limited experience of Scots in Scotland, um, there is definitely a form of inferiority complex that's active in that place at least insofar as it attaches to things which are seen to be distinctively Scottish. Um, and yeah, you know, there's, there's a, there are myths there about how they never win at everything. And, 
sports in particular, soccer even in more particular, um, and how if they were, you know, this applies to the independence debate, if they were to do that, they'd somehow muck it up, right? Uh, they're too small, they're too weak, they're too self-doubting. Um, and part of that is, I think that Gray and, and any a lot of people who study Scottish culture would say is tied to the fact that they were, people were taught that for a long time, that there was not much of anything decent or good to come out of Scotland in the modern era, with the exception of some shipbuilding, some scientists here and there. Yeah. Even the Scottish Enlightenment isn't really hasn't been promoted is to there, the degree that it deserves. Is there anything between like the first two points as well, like this opposition to the capitalization and instrumentalization of people that had like would come from sort of Scotland's relationship to England or that sort of no. I purposely didn't make that point um, because that point makes me uncomfortable. And the idea, the thing that makes me uncomfortable about it is, is trying to reduce what is inevitably a very heterogeneous population to some type of essence. Yeah. Um, there are people who have made arguments like that and you see it, you see it, uh, in comments like the Scots are more egalitarian. And there's evidence for that. There's evidence in the ways that their education system is set up, um, that they are more communitarian at the very least. Um, I mean, some of the things that are factually just true is they've been incorporated into mm -hmm. the United Kingdom under the, you know, the royal family well, but even that in, is even not in, their own. And... In the grammar of your sentence, you make them a victim, right? You used a passive construction. You said they have been or they were incorporated. But it wasn't as though that Scots didn't incorporate Scots. That wouldn't have happened without Scottish people. Now, they were rich Scottish people who had a lot to gain from the Union. But there's no easy narrative of English colonialism when it comes to Scotland, especially as it concerns the Union, because... Most of what Scots in Scotland accomplished has been complicated. Yes, so let's say that they do have an egalitarian spirit and that if you left to their own devices, they would create a fairer society. But they also, you know, were possibly the most active agents of British Empire from the 18th century onwards <laughs> as planters and settlers and in the army and as missionaries and scientists and doctors moving around studying the world. Um, some people say without exaggerating that Scots helped create or did more to create the modern world than most other nations and certainly other nations that small. Um, and so that's a very mixed legacy if that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, I, I mean, there's, a, there's I, a hang doggy type will never win quality to Scottish self identity. Yeah. I'm just curious, like how much of how much of these themes in his work are sort of, personal things of his versus mm -hmm. things that kind of would come from him being Scottish versus th other things that would come from him having read Kafka, which has nothing to do with being Scottish. Right. But, right. And that's debatable. Um, the There are schools of thought within Scottish studies as an academic field that would say that a lot of the things that you see Gray doing are very Scottish things. Um, and that's everything I've talked about here. Um, and then I think that 
there are people who would, you know, and they, like I said in the last podcast in the 80s and 90s, people read Lanark and, and probably some of these other books as well and said this is a postmodern writer. This is someone who's tapping into a larger global cultural zeitgeist, right? And there's probably some kind of argument there, although he never liked that. He never said, I'm postmodern. He always preferred the term modernist. Um, and then I, I think, as, as, as my wife would say, it would be a crime to try and explain Alistair Gray or any writer simply by saying they're from this country or they are tapped into some type of global cultural critical zeitgeist. She'd say, there's more to that book that's just about him. Um, and she's very good at reminding me of that, and I guess that's part of the reason I'm, I'm here. Does he do things that other Scottish writers do? Absolutely. Also, you don't have trends until the books are published, but people are writing the books before the books are published. Right. And if he wrote Lanark over 30 years mm-hmm. or whatever, right, then when he publishes it, it can't necessarily be part of the trend of books that are published at the end of that 30-year span if he wrote it over that whole time. He, he, was, in, he was involved with a lot of... Uh, people in Glasgow in the 70s, a lot of writers. He was definitely known to everyone, and I would. it's hard not to see him as being a part of that first, well, they call it the second renaissance, the second Scottish renaissance wave of writers in the late 70s and early 80s, throughout the 80s. Um, But he's the only one that does his, he does it, in a very idiosyncratic way that no one else would, I don't think, dare try to copy. Um, his his visual dimension is so much more highly developed than most of the other writers. Just the fact that he's he's an artist and he make basically makes mixed media novels, if you count um, the visual depictions that he includes, and they're in every one of these books. Um, I don't know. He came from a lower middle class background. Some of them come from working class backgrounds. Some of them come from posh backgrounds. Um, it's it's difficult. It's complicated. But I, I still have learned to resist those narratives about national identity. I don't know. They're at the very least complicated. And one of the things I argue in my dissertation about the science fictional dimensions in Lanner, because like I say, it doesn't make sense to say this is only about Scottishness as though walking around Scotland, going to Scottish schools, under and then reading Scottish literature somehow gives you access to this privileged historical or literary critical perspective that you then channel and, and release in your works. And one of the things I say is, even in Lanark, there's all this science fiction popping up and around and comic books and Alistair Gray, even though he's Scottish, is also reading other things and those things are influencing him and those things are being made Scottish in some way, but they complicate what it means to say Scots are this or that. Yeah. Well, and on the very, very basic level, not every Scottish person is Alistair Gray. Right. So. And a lot of, some Scottish writers are really adamant that they not get lumped into that. Um, because it's a small place that has had a handful of really successful writers who inevitably get asked questions about what Scotland means to their writing. Um, some people have been really, you know, they don't get mad, but they, they, they resist it. So like uh, A.L. Kennedy is one of those people who's an incredibly successful writer who has backgrounded her Scottishness or um, 
Ali Smith is another one. Um, I'm trying to think now. There are others. Anyway, that one took longer than I thought. I was going to jump to number five, which was the other point that I didn't have very much written down for, and then I was going to finish with four. So five is about playfulness. You could just put number four on number five. Sure. Did you know that? I mean, yes, but I, rearrange I, I'm doing this on the fly. So okay. this was originally number five. Um, so playfulness and levity are things that I love about Alistair Gray. Um, I think that his visual work, if you look at it, which is difficult, we're on a podcast, I know, is very playful. His depictions of people um, are kind of cherubic at times. They, they, they look like... Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to demonstrate my ignorance of art history here, but like a Boccaccio or like, Ital- like Raphael, like Italian figures from the 16th, 17th centuries, um, and, and they might be modeled on those people, um, kind of full and supple and, I don't know, cherubic is the word I want because they, they remind me of fat babies sometimes. Um, and so I... I love that about what he does. And then I think that in every one of these novels, even at the most serious moments, there are releases with humor. And like, poor things could be a horror show if it wanted to, but it's so funny. In part because the Frankenstein creature they create, you know, like Frankenstein would be, is totally ignorant of so many things, right? Which creates tons of comedy. Um, And the men themselves are ridiculous caricatures sometimes of, of male egos. Um, we talked last time about how at, at, in, at times Lanark is also kind of funny. His ignorance is funny. The situations he finds himself in, himself in are darkly comic, right? Um, the Thaw story is less funny. Yeah. Um, and I think it's difficult to avoid that, but even the times that are supposed to be, that are riding this knife edge between really funny and really disturbing are there, like... In that scene that I read from before, when he's talking to Mamboto, and Mamboto's like, oh, don't worry, she's not listening to anything you actually say. And then he has her read back what they have been talking about, this huge, long conversation about human aspiration, and she just, like, summarizes it in the shortest, bluntest way, and you're like, <laughs> oh, Lanark, you're going to lose. Yeah. Um, so I think that what I appreciate about that is that there are times when reading someone's prognostications or pontifications it's like the damn SAT up in here um, can be too serious um, and I, I mentioned this to you last time and I remember Will talked to me about it he's like that I talked about the dystopias and I talked about Orwell and I talked about Huxley and I talked about Zamyatin and I said Zamyatin has always been my favorite because there's space in that novel for play and I think that play is such a natural human quality. And I think that he would see it like fulfilling labor as something that we ought to be able to do. Um, and it's part of his self-deprecation. It's part of his own black humor. Like, even when he's talking about the end of the world in Lanark, it never actually seems that serious. And as we learn, it's not because it's just a story, Right. And we're playing at the end of the world when we tell our stories, right? And we say, oh, I'm going to write the end on this page and it's over. And so he's making fun of that. It's a lot of taking the piss, honestly, <laughs> to use a term that that I became fond of in Scotland. Um, 
I don't know. Did you get the sense when you were reading Lanark before that there was thought, narrative, accepted? And even then, sometimes Duncan is so ridiculous, you can't help but laugh at him a little bit. Did you find there to be enough levity, or maybe you were more focused on the dark parts? Um, I, rem- I, rem- I remember there being levity. I think, I think for me, I wasn't entirely sure how to feel about the book. And I talked about this until I got to the part where um, the epilogue mm-hmm. where we meet the author. Right. And a very playful part of that. And book. it's very funny and silly. And, and then at that point I was like, okay, I get it. Like it's been funny the whole time. But as I was reading through it, I didn't necessarily pick up on all of that because mm-hmm. I was kind of just trying to figure out what's going on but it's kind of there um, and it's it's sort of that Kafka-esque humor as yeah. well where it's just like you recognize how y- the characters are stupid where it's like you're an idiot in that moment and mm-hmm. and you see it and you you see that the book isn't telling you this person is like a perfect hero that you're supposed to love and you see them making mistakes and it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of that, I don't know how to describe it exactly. Such is life but, humor. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and Lanark's utter inability to accomplish any of the things he sets out to accomplish is darkly comic. Yeah. And it's, some, it's not necessarily stuff that you laugh at, but it's stuff where you're like, you would want to say to that person, like, you're being absurd. Just yeah. like, stop. Stop. <laughs> or some of the, te- yeah, some of this like, slightly scary technology in the unthanked parts, or the fact that he basically gets into a giant bird and flies in the belly of a bird um, are, are things we don't question. Some of the stuff in the Institute I find really funny, even though it's very macabre, the Institute. Um, like when he goes against the uh, the stream. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes everyone, you know, just all on a big kerfluffle. Um, okay, it, I just looked at the time, and it's 5.55, which means we've been doing this for at least an hour. Um, and I have other things I need to do today. So right. I'm going to wrap up with, with number four, Okay, actually number five. And so this was about his relationship to his nationality um, and to nationalism more generally. And obviously there is a a way in which nationalism this might sound like a strange might be a strange comment in in the United States but took a hit coming out of the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s right um maybe taking its final hit with the stuff that happened in the Balkans in the 90s um and Americans love to think that they're patriotic not nationalistic of course they are nationalistic and there are some really toxic, poisonous things about nations and nationalism, but I've always really enjoyed the way that Gray does his nationality. Um, and by does, I mean the way he kind of lives it and performs it and talks about it. Um, because he's a nationalist, and he's never said anything otherwise. He's, from ever since I've been reading, very... Mm, that's actually possibly not true. I would say he becomes a nationalist by the 70s. Let's, let's, let's say that, like a lot of people do. Um, when they begin to realize that it could be possible for Scotland to do things differently were it to be independent. Um, And there's a long, complicated 
story of party politics and culture that I'm not going to get into. Um, and he's someone who will argue at times, and he has two different pamphlets called Why Scott Should Rule Scotland. Um, one is from like 1990, and another one it was written like 10 or 15 years later. Um, and he argues for the distinctive character of Scottish people and their values uh, and the way they see political issues and education and culture and community and so forth. And he says that we do these things differently from the way that other people do them. And not just the way English people do them, but the way that the French do them and the Italians and, and so on. Um, but he never turns a blind eye to the problems with nationalism, which I appreciate and would be my, would be like a deal breaker for me. If, if anyone can say with a straight face that nationalism is never problematic, bye-bye, right? Um, but also in keeping with the way that he sees art and human ambition and labor, I've always enjoyed the way he sees the nation as an art project. Um, and that's not meant to be trite. <laughs> it's not childish necessarily. Um, but he's not saying we are some sacred essence. We are the Scottish Highlands of Walter Scott's era. We are a Scots dialect or accent, right? Or some customs, or we are a grudge against the English, right? Kind of like what Lanark said, we are these constantly shaped and shaping creations that are imagined over and over again. Um, and sometimes those imaginaries will be dark and sometimes they'll be hopeful. And we have the power to control those. Um, and if we are able to see that and recognize that, then we become active agents of a national future. And so here's the quote, which you've heard, because it's the most famous quote, but I looked it up because I wanted to get the wording right, which was his quote about... Oh, crap, I, I went away um, from that page. One second. It's the quote that... But basically, work as though... Yeah, work as if you lived in the early days of a better nation is a quote attributed to him. Um, and I like it because it includes work. Yeah. Right? Make as though you were creating the future you want to see. It's kind of a cliche now. and we've, we've seen that that um, type of sentiment deployed in a variety of different circumstances. But as Lanark says, right, the code for what we do isn't built into our genes. We are constantly debating what it is that we want to make. Yeah. And who we let decide those questions has so much to do with who we are and what we're going to be. And so really this kind of trickles back and over each of the four things I've already said, this idea that it's okay and, in fact, even necessary not to know but to constantly be negotiating who you are as a nation. So to come back to what you said about the 1619 Project, I don't think that anyone who's doing that actually thinks that that should be the one time that we link American history to. They're suggesting, like you said, a speculative proposition. What would it look like if we included 1619 into our calculations? I mean, I don't know. Maybe it is for them about primacy, about setting one thing and therefore throwing an entirely different group of people into the forefront of history. At some point, someone could come along and say, well, what about when the other group came and the other group came and the other group came? That's about moving the camera and saying, what if we look at right. it from this perspective and then eventually the idea would be to Picasso-like have all the perspectives. Right. Something like a people's history of the United States combined yeah. with an indigenous people's history of the United States. Um, 
so last thing. So I, I just wrote, I'm going to read this because I wrote it down and I was happy with it. But, you know, I think he's always asking us whose fictions went out, whose assumptions about people and about labor and about gender and sexuality and the roles that community and democracy play in a society went out. Who's winning? <laughs> and if we as citizens, and I think he takes that word very seriously, if we as citizens are makers of the nation and co-creators and we are all taught to see ourselves as such, we're all co-artists, um, whether we understand it or not. Um, it's another way of rethinking a word like socialism uh, as powerful and productive of both individual destiny, sorry, destiny and agency um, and of a much healthier type of community. Um, and I think he keeps asking us to participate in that. And I think that's one of the things about reading his books that I continue to come back to is it's constantly beckoning at you to join, whether that's joining in figuring out what's going on, which, right, Lanark involves a lot of figuring out, or just being a part of what sometimes feels like a town hall <laughs> of ideas and people sitting on a bench together jostling to be heard and that's that's what democracy is right it's not it's not one voice it's not consent it's consensus excuse me it's basically managing dissensus and division and everyone's subjectivity it's why it's messy and yeah. never perfect and it's why none of these books are perfect and every one of them is a mess in its own way in my opinion um so it gives me a way to think about nationalism without blushing or feeling bad because I want that. I've always wanted that. I don't, I'm not one of these people who necessarily thinks that the nation form as an idea must always be exploitative. Those people exist. And, you know, some of them say the only way to actually get past all the problems, the 1619s and so forth, is to burn it all down. I don't know if I'm there yet. Yeah. Maybe the coronavirus yeah. will do it for us.